minds with the chip inside Like a Lincoln digitized out Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Still it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP tonight, as we're sharing a recording of a talk at the last Body Hacking Con this past January. We're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and as a reminder that the same team behind Body Hacks will be putting on another edition of the Body Hacking Con this coming spring. February 2nd through 4th, 2018, in Austin, Texas, for which tickets are on sale now. For more information, go to bodyhackingcon.com. Now, we look forward to seeing you there for the talks and panels or on the expo floor. Right now, all of us at DMP are gearing up for the DEF before DEFCON here in a couple weeks. Now, the team from Body Hacks will also be there. They have a table at the DEFCON Biohacking Village so be sure to stop by and say hi. But before we share these special clips with you, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. Also, we'd like to thank Axiom VPN, our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services they provide, please go to AxiomVPN.com. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Everybody, my name is Leandra Preston-Seidler. I am a professor at the University of Central Florida in Women's and Gender Studies, but most of my research and work are in body and beauty technologies, um, particularly how we use virtual technologies to change physical bodies. This is an extension of oh, probably half of my life of <laughs> dissertation research and whatnot. I'm going to kind of, I'll wander, but I'm just going to stand here because I would like to see what I'm showing you. But um, the title of this is always modifying and growing and expanding because of the nature of technology and virtual communities shifting so dramatically. Um, so, while I've done most of my work in pro-anorexia, self-injury, fitspo, body-based communities, through my research, particularly being pregnant with a baby girl while I was doing this work, I started finding ways to look at it a little more optimistically. Like, how <laughs> am I going to do all this research and expose all of these communities and really have no answer? So, what I started doing was finding ways that people were being subversive within these communities to change our attitude and way of thinking about our physical bodies. So I'm going to go through this, some of it very quickly, spend more time on the visuals, but this is part of a much larger project, which is a dissertation, and I'm turning it into a book, uh, hopefully, if I can ever finish it. Um, so. I would love to have time for questions. I believe we will if anybody's interested. And of course, if you are interested in reading a dissertation, <laughs> that is also available online. I have modified this a bit through time um, in my expanding interest in cyborg technologies and how we apply 
visual technologies to enhance our physical bodies. Um, so beauty practices and mainstream cyborgs, I really started with two beginnings, the almighty flat iron, but before the almighty flat iron, I was probably eight years old sitting in my mom's bathroom, my face slathered in Vaseline, sitting in front of her little heater in her bathroom, like soaking it in, looking at magazines and wondering why nobody had freckles. Nobody in a magazine had freckles. I had freckles, my mom had freckles, my, my dad had freckles, but nobody in the magazine had freckles. And I didn't really process it then, but through my many years of work and research and beauty ideals and self-esteem issues, it started sinking in that that moment was profound for me because I did not know about Photoshop. And I'm 42, so this was probably, you know, a long time ago. Now Photoshop is, uh, you know, we know more about it. It's um, more obvious when we look at magazines. I think people are becoming more educated and thinking critically about this, but when you're a young eight-year-old with your face slathered in Vaseline, I don't know that Photoshop translated to me. All I knew was that I had freckles and that was not what was in the magazines. And then the almighty flat iron, I was actually added that to my presentation today because I was speaking to somebody last night about how the flat iron changed her life. And I was like, you know what? That's like a big deal. Because what I do is beauty technologies. I mean, uh, the ceramic flat iron, that's quite an advanced technology now. When I was, uh, I don't know, maybe the same age with the Vaseline, I, um, had, I have very curly hair and my mom straightened it for me. Biggest mistake of our lives because we did not understand the way that technology worked. And I was called Raggedy Ann for about four months after that because it was a mess. Um, but over the years, technologies developed and I realized how much these technological developments can affect self-esteem and the way we feel about ourselves, the way we present ourselves. And then I started thinking, is this fucked up? Or is this great? Like, is this docility or is this agency? Do we tap into the power that we can really access through maintaining beauty ideals or living up to certain standards? Or are we really just spending time and money and energy and things on this when we should be spending it on other things? And of course the answer isn't. It's somewhere deeply in between. Um, but this is really was the crux of my research is, are these technologies beneficial, agentic, you know, or not so much? Um, so, of course, some of the more traditional cyborg beauty practices, skincare, cosmetics, Botox, fillers, I mean, the more explicit, of course, we think cosmetic surgery when we think of beauty technologies, but everything that we do every second when it comes to getting ready or showering, of course, we're engaging in technology, you know, and back to the curling or the flat iron, there are shampoos that make your hair do certain things now, uh, and there are beauty products that make your skin do certain things now. So you may not need to get Botox, you may just need to buy $120 moisturizer. But what I really started getting into was how visual technologies and social networks shape material bodies. And I, like, in a simple way is, you know, you put a image on the refrigerator when you're going to diet. I mean, people do. Um, and that's your inspiration. And you go into social networks and these other communities, and now we call them thinspirations. But I started thinking about how more traditional 
inspiration to change our bodies, like pictures in the gym or the photo on the refrigerator, um, inspire material changes in our bodies. And so how we internalize imagery to either self-loathe, think we're you know, not good enough, and how can we make this more positive and start immersing ourselves in positive body imagery, and would that change the way we start thinking about ourselves? And so I know I'm like talking about, I feel like 500 things at once, but they're also interrelated, which I'll get to. Um, so I teach a lot of different courses, and one of the areas I teach in is girls' studies and girls in digital media, and that's where I started really becoming more aware about just how profoundly media affects our body image, which is, I think at this point, cliche, because we all kind of know that. But when I think about those moments, you know, um, looking at the magazine, these things haven't changed for girls. Because now we know maybe about Photoshop, maybe we can think more critically about physical, um, about visual images. But as a young person, you're not really doing that yet. You're just internalizing and internalizing. And there have to be ways if we're internalizing this ideal that is usually so outrageous that we can start internalizing other ideals. So in my research, I really focus on the more extreme body communities, like pro-anorexia communities, uh, the cutting communities, now fatspo communities. Um, I was looking at the, um, there are other BBD, um, big body communities, but a lot of them are very hypersexualized, so that kind of became another project. But I did choose to focus on pro-anorexia communities, fitspiration communities, and then fatspo communities, um, fat kini, other movements that I'm going to talk about. So rather than thinking about a traditional cyborg, which is kind of like an oxymoron, but um, you know, I focus on using verbal and visual messages to, um, in communities to facilitate those material changes, but not just changes in our body, but in the actual neural pathways of our brains, because there's something to internalizing beauty and body imagery that happens in our brains. So, uh, there's a book, How Google's Changing the Way We Think, and he talks about really the way that our increased exposure to technologies is actually changing neural pathways. And when I'm, I'm used to speaking at academic conferences, so when I speak here, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because you're obviously tapped into this at least a bit. But I think we just are so immersed in our culture that we don't always step outside to think about how it's really affecting us. So if you're into this, which you probably are because you're here, um, some of the body theories, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but if you wanted to look at some of the underpinnings of the research that I do, um, it's in cyborg and feminist theory. One of my touchstone, besides Donna Haraway, um, the cyborg manifesto, is Marshall McLuhan. And he is my bedrock because he published most of his books in the 1960s when technology was dramatically different. And the book that he published, which is a really kind of non-traditional text, very visual, uh, particularly during that time, was called The Medium is the Massage. And everybody tried to correct him because he must mean the media is the message. But no, he's, the medium is the massage because it's m massaging us. It's always affecting us and changing us. And he writes, media leaves no part of us untouched, unaffected, unaltered. 
1967. So it's obviously expanded quite a bit, and I think it's fascinating, a la 1984, how relevant some things become the longer we go. Um, Anne Balsamo and Technologies of the Gender Body focuses a lot on bodybuilding and those types of technologies. She also does a lot of work in um, maternal technologies, which is something else I look at um, in terms of how we surveil pregnant women's bodies, particularly older pregnant women, as I had a baby at 39, so I was just a big experiment. Um, and then Susan Bordeaux and Unbearable Weight really brings together the idea of body and beauty technologies and this idea of um, power and disempowerment. And Wegenstein, The Cosmetic Gaze, uh, Sheila Jeffries, Beauty and Misogyny, and Foucault, you can't really have a discussion about docility and agency without, without talking about Foucault, but Foucault wasn't really interested in women. He wasn't really interested in gender as much, but his theories were so relevant and so applicable, and so there's a whole slew of feminist critiques of Foucault that are incredibly useful to this work. So what I really, and now to get into the actual bulk of what I'm talking about, is what is pro-anorexia? It's something that I've been so immersed in that I almost forget people don't know what it is anymore. I started in the early 90s when I was teaching English composition and somebody did a um, project on pro-ana, and I had no idea what it was. And they were at the time websites, because we didn't really have, I feel like I'm like so old or something, but we didn't have social networks back then. But it was, we did, but you know, we had chat communities. It was like AOL was new, it was all this, these things that, you know, when you signed on. And so people were creating websites and communities in the early 90s. And then when Princess Diana, it came out that she had an eating disorder. Oprah Winfrey did a big story on it. And the pro-anorexia communities kind of started rising to the top where people started learning about them and censoring the shit out of them. Like, these websites were getting shut down as quick as they could even crop up. These communities were completely being just decimated online. So they started finding ways to undermine and shapeshift and create, you know, chat rooms with, um, you know, passwords, and you had to basically be a part of this community, participate, you had to know about it to find it and things. So there started, it started taking on a different kind of life to avoid censorship. Now the rise of social networks in the last 10, 15 years have completely changed the game. And if you look at Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, whatever, you name it, it's going to be different next year. Um, there are an immense number of pro-anorexia communities self-injury and cutting communities. YouTube has a whole series of videos of watching me cut and things like this. So what I find so fascinating about these communities is that these are public communities dependent, that these are behaviors that were always largely dependent on isolation, shame, privacy, hiding, and now they're taking on this new life in a public community and they're forming connections around private behaviors in public spaces. And so it's just was really fascinating to me, which is why I got so into this, um, these communities. And if you go on Google Images and type in Proana, I'll show you. I, I do it every time I present. I, I get a new Google image because I just want to kind of check in on these communities. Like, how is this changing? Is it improving? Is it becoming more censored? Is it? And it's really just 
proliferating, <laughs> proliferating. So the distinction that started being made between pro-anorexia websites and what they started calling oneorexics, people who were trying to change their bodies to adhere to social norms rather than being real anorexics, um, and people were becoming very protective over these communities because they are, were at risk because of the increasing censorship. And in social networks, it just takes the form, of course, of moderation. Um, shutting, instead of shutting websites down, now they're you know, just taking images down, taking certain communities down, and finding other ways to censor these communities. On Instagram, you cannot get a result if you put in thin spell. Uh, if you put in thin, you can. And so there are always ways around this. Some of the social network communities still allow you to put in thinspiration or pro-anorexia. Others do not. Most of them now, if you do type in anorexia, will come up with a warning that says, are you sure you want to go through? Are you sure you want to see this imagery? The version of this in the beginning was from Project Shapeshift, which is probably one of the most long, like long-term, longest-standing pro-anorexia communities. I did a whole section on them in my dissertation, and they have a lot of, um, she, she does a series of videos on YouTube now. But this is a pro-ana website. That means it's a place where anorexia is regarded as a lifestyle and a choice, not an illness or disorder. There are no victims here. And this is a really important distinction that for pro-anorexia communities is that this is a lifestyle choice, and I have a right to do this, and I have a right to make these choices about myself, and I don't want your judgment, I don't need your opinions, you know, I don't need your doctors. A lot of this came out as a result of finding that the medical community wasn't sufficiently meeting the needs of people with eating disorders, and so they started finding community elsewhere. Oh, actually, I didn't want to go back in for a second, because the tone is to be fascinating. Um, this, if you believe in the myth that something can rule over you without your consent, if you regard Anna as a disease rather than a lifestyle, especially if you see yourself as a victim in need of recovery or having recovered, it's strongly suggested you leave the site immediately. You will be triggered by the content of the site, and I will not be responsible for your desire to play with a loaded psychological gun. There are reasons why firearms are kept locked away from children. So grow a spine if you, what is, if you don't, sorry, I can't even read it, but basically it's like, you can't handle it, see ya. Um, this is what we are about, and it's extraordinarily transparent. This is the most recent, probably two days ago, typing in ProAnna on Google Images. It's a, I always use the very top. I don't like, you know, search through them because it's just all there. So it's just a one quick glimpse if you're not familiar with pro-anorexia communities. Um, there are a series of different types of imagery I categorize. Um, this is just kind of an overview. Skeletal imagery is the most common imagery you see, and it's thigh gaps, collarbones, small wrist bones, um, and it's a really specific type of imagery, and the function of the imagery is to inspire, or what they call thinspire, to encourage and inspire you to change your physical body through immersion in these communities and through this imagery. Because you don't have a disease. You are doing this out of choice according to these communities. Um, and this is actually, sorry, I'm going to make you all dizzy, but this starvation as control is a, a really important image to me uh, regarding this research because this is what it's, it's all about, control. 
But then when you think about it, it's, it's a lack of control, it's control, you know, it's, a, it's very complicated. Um, there's negative reinforcement, as, you know, it's really dependent on self-loathing, such stupid body, hey, fat ass. If you were thinking about eating, read this, you know. Um, glamorization of anorexia, you know, stars and cocaine and thigh gaps, rib cages. And then directives. This is the most interesting type of imagery in pro-anorexia communities and probably the most um, quickly growing like category of imagery because it really plays into the idea of social networks being interactive. And so rather than just showing you pictures or giving you, you know, diet tips or encouraging, they actually get, these are just some examples, but you know, and, and a workout and they'll give you directives. Um, I was gonna read some of the comments, but it's really not even necessary. Everything looks good on skinny, that's one thing, but then nothing looks good on fat. Think about it. Think about how disgusting your chubby, sweaty thighs are in those shorts. I'm like, and you're like, okay, well. But then you've got, for every like, I will fast for an hour. For every time you message me quads, I'll do 20 leg lifts. Now, when you're in a community with hundreds, if not thousands of people, and you're really fasting based on a like, it's scary and it's dangerous, but it's also intriguing because it's interactive and it is using the mind to change the body. Because pro-anorexia community is so not socially acceptable, because this idea and attitude is so fringe, and because of the amount of censorship and moderation that started negatively affecting these communities, it morphed into Fitspiration and Fitspo, which is essentially the same language and the same attitudes, but it's shrouded in health, health and fitness rhetoric, so it makes it more socially acceptable. It makes it make sense, because of course it's about being healthy. So these communities are really heavily overlapping with pro-anorexia communities, and if you look at the hashtags in pro-anorexia and fitspo, fitspo communities, you'll often see overlap in hashtags. Fitspo, thinspo. Almost every fitspo image, or uh, actually almost every thinspo image that I looked at had a fitspo or some type of related tag. So I started really looking at how these attitudes are overlapping, and this is a good example because visible abs are the new visible ribs, but I think there's ribs there too. And this idea of simplicity, like hard work and a clean diet, that's all it takes. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, all you gotta do is eat right and exercise. Um, and then there are some more positive ideals and attitudes. You know, breathe in inspiration, trust, answers you, there are some positives. Healthy eating, but then you've got, unless you puke, faint, or die, Puking's acceptable, pain's acceptable, quitting is unacceptable. This dogged determination to get this body at all costs is a feature of these communities. And then there is a um, significant overlap in self-injury and pro-anorexia communities. I talk about um, eating disorders as a form of self-injury, but some people will make very clear distinctions. Um, I'm not really gonna focus on this today so much, but this is another type of community that um, has kind of morphed out of pro-anorexia communities and social networks are um, cutting communities. <clears throat> so spending hours and hours looking at these images does change the way we think. 
And we just happen to do, I mean, be surrounded and immersed in it all the time, so we don't even think about it, you know, the whole fish and water thing. I mean, we're like, this is just the culture we live in. This is, we all know what a beauty ideal looks like, even if we don't agree with it, even if that's not my thing, but I know what the beauty norm is for men and for women in this culture. It's very obvious. So I would spend maybe three, four hours researching pro-anorexia communities, and I would go to the grocery store, and I swear I bought different food. Just like admitting it, you know, realizing that just being immersed in these imagery, like knowing what I'm doing, looking at it critically, it affected me immensely. Now, I was doing my work on cutting. as a, I was a former self-injurer, um, and so I started researching because, you know, we're so interested in ourselves. So. But I couldn't really spend too much time in those communities, and so I thought, oh, this pro-anorexia, that's where I'm going to go. And then, of course, I got pregnant with a daughter, and it just became a whole different animal for me. Um, so I started looking at the ways people were subverting these communities, and that's when I really started thinking about this idea like, okay, if I am surrounded by these images my whole life, and I think I'm fat, and I hate myself, and I'm self-loathing, even though, you know, I'm a feminist, and I'm a women's studies professor, and you know, I just spend way too much time and money on, and energy um, on trying to make myself look a certain way. There's got to be something to that on the flip side, right? Like, if we're completely immersed in communities and, and body images, and, you know, they'll say, oh, if, if you're um, trying to get over low self-esteem, go to a spa and look at normal bodies. Um, go to the gym and look around you, you know. You'll see normal bodies and go sit in the whirlpool and look at older women's bodies and as an antidote, in a way. So I started thinking, okay, so like th these bodies are everywhere, too. And they started really subverting these communities. Whereas when you would look at, I would see, sorry, I just want to check. I would see a community, a pro-anorexia community. Let's say I'm on Tumblr. And all of a sudden, you'd see pockets of positive, like, not positive, I hate to use the term positive and negative, but different, non-beauty norm bodies, bodies that really resist the normative beauty standard, fat bodies, bodies claiming fatness and owning fatness. But they're tagging things, Anna, inspiration, um, and subverting those communities and changing the landscape and the way those communities look. And, you know, in this, like, hope, it's like, oh, well, maybe this is eventually going to make a difference if we can spread this culturally and start embracing normative bodies rather than this outrageous ideal. Maybe in the same way it screwed me up in the head, it can help me or fix me or make me embrace my cellulite, um, which is definitely one of the pro-anorexia sins. They will show pictures of cellulite. Look at this disgustingness. There are many thin people with cellulite. That's beside the point. But these are the demons of the body that we see in these communities. And so there are tags cellulite. But so the subversive resistance, this is, I mean, this is subversive in its own way, but these people started forming communities around normative beauty ideals, and, or non-normative beauty ideals, um, normal bodies, fat bodies, whatever language they were claiming, and started tagging, you know, fat and proud, instead of thigh gap, thunder thighs. If you look up thigh gap, 
it's just its whole own world. I mean, there are communities constructed around attaining a thigh gap. So some of the tags on these resistant communities are thunder thighs instead of thigh gap, or they'll go into pro-anorexic communities and um, tag something thigh gap, and it's not a thigh gap. Um, and then thins bow pro-ana to dis disrupt the communities. Um, and then I'm gonna show you some examples. The one on the top left is actually tag cutting. And so you're in a cutting community, you're looking at a bunch of images, whether it's to inspire you to cut or to make you feel okay about it or to find like-minded people who understand or get it. And then it's disrupted in a way, which is really cool. But at the end, I wanna talk about like, is this a problem? Is this, are we like imposing on these communities by doing this? Um, some of these, these are mostly tags in spell. Um, you know, this body runs an eight minute mile, love yourself. If a size two is a beautiful, my size 27 must be glorious. These are some other examples I repeated that example. And then there's a whole fat bikini movement now where women take photos of themselves in bikinis who have quote unquote non-bikini bodies. Although I like that last one of the images says how to have a bikini body or how to have a beach body. Have a body, go to the beach. You have a beach body. But what's really amazing about this fat bikini movement is how quickly it just expanded and took off. And Gabby Gregg is a plus size trendsetter, writer, fashion blogger. Uh, they call her Gabby Fresh, queen of the bikini. And she started a company called Swimsuits for All and all the sizes of the bathing suits are 10 to 24. Her first collection sold out within 48 hours. But she, oh, let me see how I can get this actually, I think. This is a really good example of, let's see, can I get this YouTube? If I'm on the, oh, I don't have, can you click on that YouTube video, please? think this is problematic because why are you calling it a fat bikini? It's a bikini. But for some people, it's a sh this is from Virgie Tovar. It's a descriptor I find personally empowering and useful for building community. And what's really neat about this is it's not only a key for disrupting messages, but it's a key for locating community. So if you want to identify, I mean, if you're going to search for pro-ana, you're going to find pro-ana communities left and right. But you want to find a community that's an alternative to that, we have, you know, other hashtags to build community, identify community, find community.
And I think it really comes down to this quote. I will show you my body so that you might see a body that looks like yours. And to me, that was the real crux of this and the power in this is there is so much power in seeing bodies because we do internalize that. And that's kind of why I feel like I'm always on the little outskirts um, being like an interdisciplinarian where I kind of, you know, I do gender work and I do technology work, but I'm not like the technologist or the, you know, this or that, but there's so much overlap. Um, and I don't, I lost my train of thought with that, but essentially, oh, I know, sorry. I find myself on the outside of a, a, even a, something like this because I'm not talking about, you know, this physical application of technology. And, you know, when you look around, you're like, gosh, what I'm doing isn't, really, do I even fit in here? This isn't that interesting. It's, but it really is because we are changing our brains. And changing our brains, we're changing our bodies. Whether it's like through self-esteem and self-loathing or cutting or starving or overeating, there is something to that. We're not born hating our bodies. We are taught to hate our bodies through images. And when I post something like this on Facebook, I have a pretty diverse community. I try to keep it a little less diverse, so I actually have a community that I enjoy being with. But I'm always shocked by the responses of some individuals still to these images because we are so not used to seeing them publicly. So I do feel like I'm all over the place because I kind of am because it's all connected. Beauty technologies, body technologies, virtual communities, because we're using these communities now to promote beauty technologies, to promote certain body types, to change our bodies. But when you go back to that Nicholas Carr book about how the internet, or is Google making us stupid, or how the internet is changing our brains, you realize that if the internet's changing our brains, so is just the visual imagery that we're exposed to every single day. And how can we change our brains for good, to not hate ourselves, to, to maybe start liking ourselves, or teaching our children to like themselves and to not critique, and to not self-critique, and to not self-loathe, and to see these images for the real bullshit they are. Because when I was a little girl, every woman in that magazine had at least one freckle, period. You know, I just didn't know that. But the message was the same to me, that if I don't see it there, then it must not be pretty or ideal. And it's very simplistic thinking as an adult, especially a critical thinking adult, but I really think about how much that screwed me up. And it doesn't make me weak at all. It just makes me a human being living in this fucked up culture where we are surrounded by images of fake people who probably have the same issues with self-esteem and body image as we all do. And whether you're a man or a woman or transgender um, or transhuman or cyborg. I mean, at the end of the day, we are human, and these things do affect us. So some of the questions I have about this. Can you pull that back up, please? It's about the sacredness of certain communities and, and about us having a right to assist in these communities um, without maybe being critiqued or impeded upon. And I think about that with cyborg communities as well, because you know we gather at this conference and we talk about things that a lot of people don't talk about or think are weird. 
um, and maybe they are, but they're so fascinating, and they're only weird because they're new. And a lot of the talks, even at this conference, this particular year, are about you know rights and cyborg rights and, and responsibilities, but also um, censorship. And so then I wonder, as much as I want to be all idealistic, feminist of a daughter who has grown up hating herself, they have a right to these communities. And are we impeding upon them, not we, but these resistance, um, you know, disrupting them, using different hashtags to change the landscape in the communities? And then it's a question, of course, of is it just resistance or acquiescence? You know, am I tapping into power when I live up to beauty and body ideals? Or am I just acquiescing to norms that are so outrageous that we all know they're outrageous? and um, spend so much money on doing these things. And that's why Susan Bordeaux, who I cited at the beginning, in unbearable weight, is so important to me and my work because she talks about how much time and energy women in particular spend focusing on appearance and beauty and hair and dieting and sucking the life out of ourselves when we could be putting that energy and time and passion into something else, something that benefits us, something that benefits the world, something that does more than just change the way that we look. But if that is something that is empowering, it's like this really complicated question. Is this empowering or are we all just like victims of our culture? I mean, and of course it's not an either or, but that's, you know, the way I'm going to pose the question. So, and then where do we draw the cyborg line, which really isn't even something that needs to be answered. It's more of a, um, uh, what's the word? Rhetorical question. Um, because the more work I do in, rec in seeing how visual technology changes our brains and our physical bodies and our neurology, I realize that this is just a cyborg as a prosthesis. Um, and really, who decides? You know, I belong here as much as anybody. And the censorship of pro-anon cutting communities, that's a whole other area, but that's a really important area to look at, particularly in a context like this, where people make judgments about what's acceptable, and people make judgments about, you know, what we're doing to our bodies. Like, do we have a right to do this? Do I have a right to start myself? Hell yeah. Do I have a right to put a, you know, implant something into my arm to open my garage if I want to? But then we have to think more largely about the implications on young people, the implications on, you know, it's just, it's complicated. And then, of course, this, what I started with, the preservation of and respect for spaces. Um, is this, I mean, is it warranted? Is it an impediment? Is it wrong? Now, if you are, I am, um, this is one of my email addresses, and this is a, actually, this website, is an accompaniment to my dissertation, but I continually keep it alive. So anytime there are many chapters um, and categories of imagery, and if you want to um, see just some examples of some of the more detailed um, visual imagery that I look at in terms of how it changes our, neuro our neurological processes, um, that website is still very much alive. Um, now, for some reason, I don't know if it's because I'm standing up here presenting live, but I feel like it wasn't as organized as maybe the first time I did it, but it doesn't matter because I'm really interested in the last slide and would love to hear what some of you think about some of these issues. If we, I do believe we have time. 
for questions and answers. And I really encourage discussion and, yeah, we have time. If anybody has any questions or how you see this kind of in this context, yeah. Wow, interesting. That's a good question. Well, I mean, you mean in terms of this, they're very much about like the self and the other? Well, and I, that is, I didn't, I wasn't sure about the terminology, so I'm glad you clarified that. But uh, it's, I'm really glad you asked that because there are communities specifically constructed to address both of those attitudes. And so this project Shapeshift, where she's like, basically, screw you if you, you know, if you're so weak that you can't be a part of this community, um, it's a very explicit way of owning that. Like this, I, I know that I don't think I have a problem and I don't have a problem according to me and I'm going to build an entire community around it and I'm going to only serve people who also feel that way. However, there are a whole other series of communities who seek to address um, this as an eating, as a disorder, as an illness, and people who are seeking recovery. And so over time, as pro-anorexic communities have developed, there has been two trajectories very specific trajectories, which are those who do not see this as a problem or a disorder, and people who do and are seeking help. And really, this group does not want to be impeded upon by this one at all. And they've worked very hard to maintain the separateness of these communities, because now all these anorexics, you know, are hopping on board and disrupting and the integrity of those communities. Um, and so they do really specifically address both. But of course, you'll see imagery that reflects both within mostly pro-anorexia communities. Um, anorexia recovery communities don't typically encourage imagery at all, um, visual imagery, because of triggers. And there are trigger warnings on almost every site that you go to. And that's now what I see with the moderation of Pinterest, Instagram, Tumblr, are the ones I looked at specifically, um, that have, if you look up cutting, they will give you resources for suicide and self-injury which is a different issue because cutting and self-injury aren't typically related to suicide, um, but that's another issue. And the same with eating disorder, if you put in a, a term like Thenspo or Perinorexia, you're seeking this community, they will give you resources. Um, so in a way, those, that's where this kind of overlaps. You know, it's like the, we're going to impede on this pro-anorexia community by giving you resources, even though you've made it very clear you're not seeking recovery, but that's because we think that's what you need. But it's really interesting, I mean, in itself, to look at the way, I mean, how prolific social networks are, how many participants there are on social networks, and to even imagine how you moderate them. 
Um, and banning hashtags is, and, and then the automatic um, appearance of warnings and things like that are probably the most effective way to maintain such a massive space. And so, but then you've got people who are, there's always a way to go up over and under. And so instead of thinspo now, you just type in thin on Instagram and you're gonna get the same exact imagery, which is in a more extreme way what we do with fitspo imagery too. Um, and there are fitspo communities that are not, I don't wanna collapse them, but because I focus on the overlaps. Um, not the distinction so much, but anyway, I hope that answered the question. Yes? What kind of examples, if any, are you seeing about technology, um, particularly in the leading edge technology, things like VR and AR in particular, um, being leveraged um, for the purpose of these communities? And I'm thinking you can cut in both directions, right? You've got people who are using it for therapy. I'm thinking about the simple mirror test that will be not yet but I haven't really looked and gone there yet but that is really I mean this is such this was a static project because of course it was a dissertation and now it's just like shoo, because t the way technologies are um so rapidly increasing and, and finding ways to utilize them and even walking through the expo and thinking about those technologies in relation to this. I have not seen that, but not because it's not there. I just haven't really focused on that. But I think um, the example you gave of imagining being in a particular body could have a really profound influence on, you know, whether it's just eating disorders or maybe trying to help people but but again it's it's people who I mean if you want if you see this as a problem and that's the real question of ethics is the right to be anorexic the right to a pro-anorexia community without you know your ideals coming in on my community and messing with it you know they worked hard people have worked really hard over the past you know since at least the early 90s I'm sure way before that to construct and maintain these communities um, because they feel this is an acceptable life choice, and who's to say it isn't? I don't know. As of two or three years ago, with the publication of the DSM-5, uh, being homosexual is no longer considered psychiatric pathology, um, where previously it was. Um, do, do you see this um, going the same way? Not really, because it's such a dangerous and deadly disease. I mean, it really, it, whether or not, okay, no, I should clarify. I didn't, I'm not a psychologist, and I've done this as a techno, a text and technologist. So the way I had to, you know, just um, not kind of step into arenas that I'm not an expert in was to really focus on the, the imagery, categorizing the imagery, identifying what types of visual and verbal messages, makeup communities, and things like that. And not trying not to go too far into the actual eating disorder as psychology, because that's not my expertise, but it's really difficult to do that, because of course we're talking about what some consider, in the, including DSM, as a psychological illness. But eating disorders can be extraordinarily dangerous and deadly, whereas 
in itself, homosexuality is, is not. I mean, in a, in a cultural context, it can be, of course. Um, and so that's where I see the distinction. And I think why maybe you can't pose it as a question is because it's like that. It's not like there's not a question or an answer. It's this in between and this like kind of middle space of, you know, we as a culture, we want to, I want to save you. This isn't right. You know, yet if you look at what we're surrounded by and, and what makes money and what we really peddle are these images that contribute to some of these conditions, disorders, choices, however you want to phrase it. And so it's like, it's like you know, this oxymoronic kind of weird middle space, and that's why I don't ever have an answer to that question. Is like, is this okay? You know, and then and then you have also the dilemma, dilemma of where people will argue. You know, who's to say that fatness is healthier or superior to this versus you know the other way around? Or you know, these aren't even normative bodies we're seeing because these are both extremes. And so how is this? Because really, you know, the, the pendulum swings, and so now we're doing fat spiration. There's not like you know normal body spirations, or there's not you know normal because of course that word shouldn't even exist. But the fact is, there's not average body um, tags. There's it's it's the pendulum swing still. And so I think what we're kind of sifting through is this middle space, like this is, this terrain, I mean, it's been developing for so many years, but it just gets more and more complicated. Um, and I think a lot of that is because of the nature of social networks and the dynamics of virtual communities and virtual spaces, which are so special and crucial and important. And that's why I feel uncomfortable with subverting certain spaces, even though it's something I'm really into and I really want to promote this, you know, positive body image, you know, all these big kind of cliche terms and phrases and how can we do this? 
but I also really value virtual communities and spaces and people's rights to exist in these spaces. And so, you know, when I talk about pro-anorexia, I try not to do it in a, with, through a critiquing tone, even though I'm sure it's obvious if you, you know, read my work or hear me speak, kind of which end I'm falling on in terms of what seems healthy, what seems, you know, how, how it screwed me up personally, because that's all I can speak to, these images. But it's just complicated, because, I mean, it's a human, it's a human right? Like, it's, it's that self-control, that self-ownership. But it's really uncomfortable, because it's like, I'm going to stand by and watch people promote self-starvation. It's so extreme, you know, and it's uncomfortable. Oh, not really. I, I mean, I, I could, yeah, I haven't really, I've really seen um, much of that in terms of overlap as far as like prostheses and things. I mean, of course, um, body technologies in terms of, um, you know, med medication and things like that, um, which actually was interesting to go through the expo as well because there's so much around, you know, optimizing our bodies and whatnot where it seems that on either end of that spectrum maybe it's not optimal um, because you're, whether you're pushing your body to an extreme or embracing the extreme. Um, of course, being fat is not in itself an extreme and nor is being uber thin. Being anorexic is being, um, you know, having an, an eating disorder on the other end of the spectrum is. But um, so in terms of technologies, dieting technologies, exercise technologies, BMIs, which is a whole, they have a, an anorexic BMI scale um, which falls, you know, of course, the high end is the low end of a typical BMI scale. BMI is something else I critique in itself, but, um, you know, but it's interesting because they're really setting a whole new standard for their community. I'm going to decide what a proper anorexic BMI is. Um, we're going to make this decision on what your BMI should be. Um, so there are a lot of technologies that I see implemented you know, and how many calories you can burn doing X amount of things, but not so much more explicitly like in terms of prostheses and things like that. Or like what you were speaking to in terms of using um, virtual um, and visual imagery technologies to kind of affect these attitudes and, you know, body, I guess, internalization of our ideals. Mm-hmm. Well, in a, in a pro-anorexia community that's functioning as a pro-anorexia community, absolutely not, because we're not going to highlight, I don't want to say the realities, but the realities of what this can really do to you, because it's more of a rejection of it. However, if you were to, I, I, I believe the, pro, uh, the anorexic BMI scale would be addressed very differently in a community that is functioning for recovery versus maintenance. 
Um, you also have, you know, I mean, there are so many tips on, you know, what to do if, you know, instead of eating if you're hungry and how much water to drink if you want to, you know, maintain and how much, how many calories can you, like, literally subsist on, but it's not so much what can kill you, it's how can you get away with this without dying, really. Um, how can you maintain this body and achieve this ideal, self, you know, identified ideal, um, or culturally identified ideal in some cases, without dying, because this is, you know, not a disease, it's a choice. I was speaking to somebody last night, I don't think she's here, who was talking about actually pedophilia communities. Um, and she was talking about a particular community that's a community of, of female pedophiles being a more, you know, a less a kind of accessible community for people. Um, and so I could see that as not something I'm familiar with because my research is pretty focused um, on self-injury communities. But, and so like, that's why I use the cutting communities because there's so much overlap. Um, but there, I'm sure, are. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were think talking about as well, because she was actually saying the communities she was researching, because she's a journalist, were, um, they were functioning to help prevent acting on these desires. And so I could see a parallel in communities trying to maintain this behavior as a choice or a norm, because, of course, there is a victim or victims, but or you've got the, you know, this commu these communities which are trying to help prevent um, or keep that behavior in check. But I'm sure there are probably communities built around just about anything we can think about, which is what's so fascinating and amazing about the internet. I mean, it really is unbelievable how, I mean, it's, it's there, it's there, whatever it is. Um, Yeah, that's a good example. And, and, and then now that there's an antidote to overdose, which is not the case for a lot of other conditions. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Particularly, I've seen it more so in cutting communities, um, harm reduction. And there is, in pro-anorexia communities, there is also uh, an, an element of that, and, and some more, more um, emphasized than others. But I see it really, I've seen it so much more explicitly in um, cutting communities because of the more clear distinction between um, cutting behaviors and suicidal thoughts and ideas because it's, there's been a lot of work done to make that distinction that because you're a cutter doesn't mean you're suicidal. Um, and so there is so much harm reduction um, in, within those communities. And I, am, I also see it in pro-anorexia communities as well. And I think that in terms of, I mean, with you know addiction and there's some I mean there's so much benefit to harm reduction techniques employed in these communities because if you are identifying this as a choice and you're going to engage in these behaviors then you know we'll, maybe we just we don't want you to die um, and so if you're going to do this then maybe here's a way to do it safer or here's a resource if you have you know want to reach out without being judged or you know there are a lot of um, 
and when the moderation, when it pops up with the warning, there's a lot of anonymous phone numbers and things like that. You can be you know, anonymously reach out, and so you're not necessarily judged. Um, because that's all, what it really comes down to is seeking a community for a lot of these communities. It's seeking a community where you can openly engage in these behaviors and ideas and thoughts and feelings without being judged, without being ridiculed, without being like, you know, getting the looks of horror and disdain, I mean, and just disgust. You know, I mean, to try to explain to somebody, like, you know, when you cut yourself, it's just like, what? And so, you know, this is a really, these are really important spaces, and that's why I have, the, there is the tension between, you know, disrupting these communities and peeding upon these communities, allowing them to exist, saving people's lives, trying to make my daughter not hate herself, you know, all these things. So, it's a lot. I mean, but they are, they are important spaces, um, regardless of, you know, the function for the, act, the individual. I mean, spaces really need to exist. And it's just like, you know, cyborg community where people don't understand it and people critique it or it's dangerous or... But a lot of it's about not understanding. And I don't want to draw that parallel because, I mean, of course, eating disorders, drug addiction, you know, there's such different things. But, I mean, it's easier to draw the distinction between things like homosexuality and eating disorders as DSM defines them than some of these other behaviors, so... But thank you so much for your time and um, questions. And a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for Body Hacking Con, it'll be worth the trip. For the panels and the topics covered are just a small portion of the action. With the activities and networking available with the other attendees is the true payoff. So, our loyal listeners, if you'd like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, DangerousMinds.io, or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DangerousMindsPodcast. Please keep in mind, events like these are listed on our DMP Google Calendar, and if you have an event that you would like to add to it, please email us more information about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us would like to thank you for joining us as we floor, further explore the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you like the programming we share and the work we are doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a supporter at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we know it is dead. <laughs>